from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. If you were in your teens or early 20s in the late 1960s and 70s, a lot of your motivation to grow your hair long or drop acid or whatever was about rejecting the lifestyle choices or values of your greatest generation parents. So I guess it's karma that today, as those baby boomers' children are in their 20s and 30s, there is a new generation gap members of both generations feeling some mutual resentment and disapproval. Here are some actual recent clickbaity news headlines. Baby boomers are the worst generation. Millennials, the me, me, me generation. Baby boomers are what's wrong with America's economy. How millennials are ruining the workforce. Are baby boomers a generation of sociopaths? Millennials are entitled, narcissistic, and lazy. Stop blaming millennials. Don't blame the boomers. How baby boomers destroyed everything. It's that rift that's at the center of a new novel by Daniel Torday called Boomer One. Today I punched a baby boomer in the face. That's one of the novel's main characters, Mark Brumfield, a 30-year-old who loses his Manhattan magazine job, moves back into his parents' basement in Baltimore, and takes to YouTube to rant about it all in this, his first video manifesto. Today I punched a baby boomer in the face. Today he punched back. Tomorrow he won't. This is the first boomer missive. Today I will lay out what there is to lay out when we think about the baby boomers as boomer boomers in the years ahead. There will be much more to say in the days ahead, but today I want to do two things, having already punched a baby boomer. I want to tell you a story, and I want you to think about just where you fit into that story yourself. His video goes viral, he makes more of them, and inspires copycat videos, and eventually incites a whole movement of millennials who attack boomers and boomer icons. Jim Morrison's headstone is smashed with a sledgehammer. David Sedaris, welcome back to Fresh Air. I'm so excited to be able to talk with you again. Terry Gross's studio is vandalized. Ladies and gentlemen, I've got the winners. I give you... Tommy Ross and Kerry White. Stephen King's house in Maine is doused in pig's blood. So it's funny. It's a, <laughs> it it's satirical funny. fiction. Um, <laughs> it is. I mean, people. It is satirical fiction, but it's not a comic novel. That's right. right? That's right. I mean, I think the the sort of instinct for the book was, um, you know, I teach at a college, and I spend a lot of time trying to pay attention to what's happening in the world. And, and there was a moment in the around the time of, like, Occupy Wall Street and after where a lot of identity politics were just kind of roiling everyone. And, and I think that can be okay, but some of the rhetoric started to feel, I don't know if scary is the right word, but it made me a little itchy and I didn't know why. But for the book, I think I wanted to just ask the question, so, like, what would be a really intractable aspect of identity, generational conflict? And then what would it look like to just spend a couple of years trying to play that out in my head. So after Mark 
washes out during the great print journalism die-off. He, he moves back to his parents' basement, and, and he's angry at, at the effing boomers for not recognizing his brilliance and for not just moving out of his way. Um, we heard the start of his first YouTube rant, and here's the end of it. If you have no job, I want you to look at the basement where you live right now. Is it a basement like my basement? Did it make you happy, this basement? Does it smell musty? Does it contain the same couch on which you kissed your first girl when you were in the eighth grade? That's not who I want to talk to right now. Instead, if you do have a job, I want to talk to you. I want you to do something different. If you do have a job, I want you to pull out your latest pay stub or pull it up online. Do you see the line that says social security tax? I want you to see how much money you pay every month so the baby boomers can live off social security. And I want you to know one thing. You will never see a cent of that money. You will never receive social security. You will never have a retirement. You will never have your parents' jobs because those jobs will not exist. And you are paying not for you, but for them. You are not paying so that when you are 65, you will receive social security in the form of money. You are paying for them now. You are paying so that they will be able to live well now, now that they are retired. But they are old and you are young and this is America, land of the young and home of the young and when the system is broken, you fix the system. Think about that until my next missive. Think about how this might look if it were different. Think this. Social insecurity. Social insecurity. Social insecurity. Social insecurity. Resist much. Obey little. Propaganda by the deed. Boom, boom. I we called it a rant, but and it and it gets to be a rant, but but for, until the end, it's a it's a reasonable essay about what he defines as generational disappointment, right? It's not crazy. It's not crazy, and I think I wanted to give him enough rope to hang yeah. himself. And so I think, you know, for me here, I needed Mark to sound convincing, uh, and I needed my reader to be able to believe that there was enough spark in there that, that people might want to follow it. Right. Um, but I think also just to recognize that it's that moment at which it, it sort of, like, flips from, from like, legitimate complaints or legitimate analysis to, and now let's do something violent, right. that it becomes a problem. So you you have three different narrators in this novel, Mark the militant, Cassie, his girlfriend, and then ex-girlfriend, and Mark's mother, Julia. And all of them are or, or were musicians, uh, Mark in a bluegrass band, Cassie in her punk band, and Julia, a fiddle player in San Francisco in the 1960s, you're also a musician. I was a bluegrass mandolin player and played a little guitar. Yeah. So that's why you made music big parts of all your main characters' lives? I mean, some of it is just that I love music uh-huh. and and, and, um, and really wanted to like put that music in there. But but some of it is that I do kind of think of, especially for these generations, as music being what defines them, right? Like there is a way in which, especially the pop music of these eras, just could come to define you. People could spend their whole life on the road with the Grateful Dead or, you know, or you could be a very impressive fiddler who spent her whole right. life playing fiddle. And so I think giving like that... Like Cassie. To, uh, like Cassie and also like Julia, who, yeah. who ends up giving it up 
And some of that also seemed like a really appropriate way to tell the story of generations, right? There is something weird to me about how much my kids still love the Beatles and how much I love the Beatles and how much my parents love I'm the Beatles. Telling you, and it's, it's been crazy to me since, I mean, as soon as I got to be 30-ish, 35, <laughs> like, what? The kids today still like the music I like? But music is so central to these characters. You've actually produced a soundtrack, not just a playlist for the book. Talk about that. So uh, I felt excited about the idea of there being a soundtrack for the book. Uh, early in the book, Cassie and Mark meet and they meet because she's in a punk band who are playing a traditional song called Pretty Polly and then he follows her up and nobody can really hear because their ears are ringing and he plays that same song Pretty Polly with his bluegrass band. So I got really excited about the idea. It's a very beautiful, it's a lovely meet cute rom-com thing. Uh, the, the song itself is a very sad murder ballad um, but uh, but I liked the idea of that contrast. Uh, I've always loved that kind of Elliot Smith, like it sounds like saccharine pop music but he's saying fuck a lot. Uh, and so uh, so I liked the idea of there being sort of music that actually went along with the book. And I used to play in bands, and I still know a lot of guys in bands so and girls. So I asked a bunch of them to record, uh, 15 people to record very, very different versions of the song Pretty Polly. Um, three of them actually play throughout the audiobook. So they signal each character as you listen to the audiobook. Wow. For each Cassie section, we hear part of a Dr. Dog version of Polly. <laughs> Uh, for each Mark section, we hear actually some mandolin music I recorded. And then for each Julia version, we hear a little bit of Peter Matthew Bauer from The Walkman. You know, Pretty Polly was made famous by Ralph Stanley in the 60s. Oh, Polly, pretty Polly, would you take me on But it's also based on a Scottish murder ballad from the 18th century. So I think that sense that, like, there's a renewal of, of the old and constantly being renewed. Um, for me, that actually is what makes something new. So your one song that you have throughout the audiobook and uh, in the soundtrack of this, of this novel, Pretty Polly, we always go out on music. So which, which version... Of the ones you've used, or another one entirely, would you like us to go out on? I'm a big fan of Peter Matthew Bauer of The Walkman. They're one of my favorite bands from the late 90s. Uh, and so Peter's version is, is a very kind of like hard-driving Bob Dylan, but updated version. So we should hear that. Daniel Torday's novel Boomer One is out now. The excerpts from the book were read by Alex Kramer. The headlines at the top of that segment were voiced by Shasha Leonard and Studio 360's Andrew Adam Newman. Speaking of generational differences, coming up... Learning to love that show your grandparents made you watch as a kid. One, two. I think Lawrence Welk is corny and cheesy. That's part of what, what's great. And that's coming up on Studio 360, right after this. Studio 360. 
Thank you, thank you. I'm sorry to say we've come to that time again. Time to say good night. If you were born after the Carter administration, the first time you heard of Lawrence Welk was probably in a recurring sketch on Saturday Night Live, on which Fred Armisen played the old-timey band leader, Lawrence Welk. Now to take us out is a sister act from the Finger Lakes. The sketches featured a, a group of four singing sisters, one of them played by Kristen Wiig, with a freakishly large forehead and freakishly tiny hands and perpetually going way off script. Even though we're a lot alike, we enjoy different things. I like waterfalls. I like butterflies. I like rainbows. I like chasing cars. For those of us old enough to remember the real Lawrence Welk, he was this accordion-playing band leader who had a variety show on television from the early 50s to the early 80s. And he had this curious Eastern European accent. He'd been born and raised in rural North Dakota, but in this German-speaking community. As a child in the 1960s, I remember both sets of my Nebraska grandparents watching the show on Saturday nights, primetime, ABC. And talk about generation gaps. To me, at the time, Lawrence Welk was the epitome of cheesy and dated and square. Which is exactly how Paul Foch felt about the show as a kid. Foch now teaches media and communication at New York University and the College of Staten Island. And for our feature called Guilty Pleasures, he talks about how his opinion shifted 180 degrees. As a kid, I remember my grandfather, a cattle farmer in southeastern Iowa. He was a very quiet man. Taciturn would be the <laughs> would be the best word. I remember probably Saturday evenings is when he watched TV. When Lawrence Welk came on, we're happy you could join us as we have a full menu of champagne music. Gentlemen, one, two. The first thing, of course, is the hair, the over-the-top hairstyles. The sets were just so, you know, so colorful. And the costumes, of course, were full of color. And then the singing, they're just so sincere. And, of course, today, sincerity is not hip. It's not cool. I think Lawrence Welk is corny and cheesy. That's part of what, what's great. I call it my guilty pleasure, but I don't feel guilty about it, actually. I think it's cool. The whole idea of camp is your perspective more than the actual content. So you can watch it as camp. You can watch it in, in this ironic fashion. That's something that I still enjoy it in this ironic fashion. I find it hilarious still. But I came to love it as more than something to laugh at. Our very fine accordionists, Myron Florin, all of the champagne music makers, join me now with that all-time favorite, Stumbling. One, two, and First thing you notice about Lawrence Welk is he has this really strange accent. English wasn't his first language. 
And German was his first language, and that's why he has this weird accent. Ladies and gentlemen, I've had a little bad throat. Bobby, can I have a little water before I go on with the show? <clears throat> he carried a baton. Thank you very much, Bobby. And he played the accordion. This is what's so great about the show is there's this connection to people's immigrant past. The Irish in America have been famous in many fields, government, education, entertainment. And here's one Irishman who's pretty well known for his great tenor voice. Of course, I'm speaking of our own Joe Feeney. And of course, as they you play see, into whatever their immigrant past cliche is. So he's wearing a green suit. And he's singing My Irish Rose. My wild Irish rose, the sweetest flower that There's this point where he holds the microphone for him to kind of get him to raise his voice to a higher note. So there's this great rapport between them. And then at the end, he says, listen to this. Thank you. Now, wasn't that nice that he would let a German play for an Irishman here? He's referring to himself as a German, but of course he's a German-American. There's a recognition that America, of course, is the land of, of immigrants. This is something that has been often lost in our contemporary rural America, I think. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm wearing the official jacket of the Future Farmers of America. This is uh, Myron Florin, and he's the Norwegian when Lawrence Welk refers to him. This is a national organization of some 400,000 high school boys in the farming areas of America. And this was a group that every kid that grew up in a small town, like my father, my father was a member, would belong to. The expectation, of course, was that that you would become a farmer eventually as well. You know, since the 1960s and 1970s, rural America has emptied out. The town that my father grew up in, where my grandfather farmed, it's a ghost town. That's why there's a certain melancholy to this show and to the program. Oh, one of the acts I remember on the Lawrence Welk Show is the tap dancer, Arthur Duncan, who was one of the first African-Americans on broadcast television. Rhythm is his business. So here, Rhythm Arthur is Duncan is tap dancing. The women are singing and looking on as he tap dances. Arthur Duncan was key to kind of preserving this very much African-American cultural tradition. 
Lawrence Welk considered him part of the family, the musical family. So he sang with, danced with white women. It was seen as completely normal. This was back in the 60s and 70s when there's still a lot of discomfort with racial integration. This is a time when I was going to school and there was a lot of protest about integrating the schools. So in, in a subtle way, he's challenging this. And this scene is basically a Thanksgiving dinner table where they're all sitting around and they start singing this beautiful song, Be Thankful. Be thankful, be thankful For sweet things in life They're sitting at this a table. There's Arthur Duncan. You know, all the food is there. You have this spotlight coming down as if from heaven uh, on the front of the table where, where Jimmy Roberts is singing. Be grateful, be grateful to know. The song Be Thankful was written by Irving Taylor, who was a Jewish New Yorker. This song is a recognition that everything you have, if you are a believer, comes from God. So you should be thankful that you are so blessed to have what you have. Of course, the implications for me are that you should reach out to help others. For sweet things in life This particular scene, I think, is just so powerful because it, it has this kind of utopian vision of family that is not based on blood. It's based on friendship and love and, and joy. And it's not based on exclusion. It's based on inclusion. People from very diverse backgrounds. To know he will In our contemporary world, where there is this feeling among rural America that the coastal elites look down on us, that it can be useful to appreciate the culture of rural America. Now, this doesn't mean that this is going to bridge political divides, but it's at least something that we can use to work towards understanding. I mean, you know, in my own family, both my parents are Republicans who watch Fox News, yet I love them. I find ways to relate to them, you know, through culture. At the time I rediscovered the show, I went to visit my grandmother in a Florida nursing home. This was my mother's mother, actually. And I went to visit her in Florida with my mother. She just was very depressed. 
she was clearly in a place that she wasn't very happy. Later, when we said goodbye to her, which was the last time I saw her, my mom, you know, was like, oh, at least they're playing beautiful music. And I'm like, Mom, it's Lawrence Welk. Good night, sleep tight, and pleasant dreams to you. Everybody's room was playing Lawrence Welk. Let every dream come true, and now till we meet again. Adios, au revoir, I'll be the same. Studio 360's Jocelyn Gonzalez produced that story. So, do you have a TV show you love that would surprise people because it's so unfashionable or otherwise seems like something you would hate? Or a song or an app or a movie that you're obsessed with that might raise eyebrows? If so, that's a guilty pleasure, and we want to hear about it. Send an email or voice memo to incoming at studio360.org, and we may give you a call. Coming up now... I pictured myself in the future, lying in bed, being really old, watching videos on MTV and being really angry. Why abandoning TV comedy stardom in South America for a musical career was worth avoiding that lifetime of regret. I could have been, I I would have done it better, that sucks, oh I hate them all. Juana Molina performs live right here, next in Studio 360. Studio 360. Since the mid-90s, the musician Juana Molina, who mostly lives in Buenos Aires, has been releasing extraordinary albums that combine electronica with folk and rock. They're great. These days, she tours the world with a small band, but early on, she recorded and performed almost entirely by herself, using looping pedals to layer her voice and acoustic guitar. And even though her music has avant-garde elements, it sounds remarkably organic and fun. Her latest album is her first in four years. It's called Halo, and she is with us here in Studio 360 to sing and play with her band and to talk with me, Juana Molina. Welcome. Thank you very much. Um, I, I am uh, so happy to have uh, been introduced to you by my one of my producers uh, a month or so ago because I've just you're my default play now. I, I I've listened to most of your music and, really? and you you are just in my total sweet spot of oh, popular listen. music. Thank you, thank you. Um, before we talk any further, will you play a song? Of course. And and this will be which? It's gonna call it's uh, Kosoko. We're gonna play Kosoko. And, right and Kosoko, I, I have bad Spanish, but Kosoko is not a word familiar to me. That is that a word? It's not a word. Oh, good. Thank no, you. No, no, no. It's not a word. Good. <laughs> Una 
That is Juana Molina performing Kosoko. It's from your new album, Halo, uh, with Odine Schwartz on uh, guitar and keyboard and, and, vocals. and vocals and Pablo Gonzalez on drums. Yes. Um, it's kind of a family business. Your father, uh, may he rest in peace, he recently died. Yes. Horacio Molina uh, was a very well-known uh, tango musician yeah. in the country of tango. What did he make of your music? At the beginning, he... He always thought I was a genius and how genius you are. And he made me just be so uh, self-conscious about being a genius without any skills. So uh, he made us be too self-conscious about what we did or what we didn't. So we couldn't just start with a very bad band and play anywhere because that was really bad. Well, you need to start and, uh, and Because enter. you're great and you have yeah, to fulfill because, your greatness. Exactly, exactly. So huh. I, I feel that I didn't have the time to learn from, from the bottom. Huh. Um, and then I became an actress, a comedian. I know. Just to make, my, to, to be able to pay my rent and, and, and pay my guitar lessons. Really? And, and that was, that's why I, I read that and, and, and looked up the videos of you being this big comedy star with your own show at age 31. Um, in fact, we have a clip of you from your big show uh, in the early 90s. Um, Juana y sus hermanas. And in this episode, you, you're playing a panelist on a TV talk show who talks on and on without ever getting to her point. Ante todo, muy buenas tardes a los doctores, profesionales, conductores, productores, directores y acompañantes de este programa. 
Buenas tardes. Buenas tardes. So acting and, and comedy, that, that, that began just as a day job to try to... Yes, I, I said, okay, I can do this. I know I have these characters that I can impersonate because I thought I need, I really want to make music, but how can I afford to play music all day long without having to work all day long? How can I do that? And I said, TV, that's, that has to pay. But then I got, uh, it went well. You were a star. And that was when everything was kind of forgotten, um, meaning that I was caught in my own trap because I had found the solution to be able to have money to play music, and then the solution became the main thing. Um, and then when I realized that was happening, I stopped everything. But wait, seven wait, wait. years had already passed. But, but such uh, admirable uh, presence of mind and fortitude to say, nope, I'm giving that, I'm giving that stardom up to go back to what I want to do. That that's kind of extraordinary. But honestly, I've been, I had been wanting to do this f- since I was a really little girl. Right. And I thought, I, I pictured myself in the future, lying in bed being really old, watching videos on MTV and being really angry. I could have, I could have I been. Could have, I could have been. I, could have, I would have done it better. Yeah. That sucks. Oh, I hate them all. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Yes. So your first album comes out. You're, you're not a kid. You're 30-something. You're um, did you feel as though, okay, I'm glad I'm doing music at this age rather than young because I have no, experience? Never. Or, no, never. No, of course not. No. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm always regretting not having had the balls to do it. Really? Yeah. Even though when you had w- the balls to quit? Television stardom? Yeah, I should have started when I was, when I wanted, uh, at 12. Huh. We have another clip of you uh, in in This Is Your Life, Juana Molina, uh, from uh, 1967, a single uh, co-written with your father. This is Juana Molina at age five. Tengo que hacer un regalo para el día de la madre. No tiene que ser muy caro. Super cute. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and and it was kind of a hit, right? It was. It was for the Mother's Day. Uh-huh. And my dad uh, never told me there were people at the studio. So everybody was hidden in the dark. Sneaky. I, I Sneaky could, stage father. I yeah. just couldn't open my mouth in front of anybody else than my sister, huh. my dad, and that was it. So he knew that. And he made the whole studio, RCA Studios, to be in, in, in Buenos total, Aires. total yeah. darkness. Ah. And the technicians working with little lamb. I don't know how they did, but I thought we were alone. And that's how I could do it. Wow. Yeah. You're playing in the United States this fall on this tour. Where else are your fans? Are they everywhere? Or do you, are, is it, are you huge in Luxembourg? How, where, where is your fan base? I think now... Uh, my biggest fan base is in Argentina. Uh-huh. After all these years. Because they didn't love you for a while, right? No, because they didn't even listen to me because I was an actress. You are an actress. Oh, so and, and you can't change act- lanes. Exactly. Ah, interesting. That was the main thing. Now there's a generation that didn't ever saw exactly. you. Exactly. Yeah, right. Yes. Now I have oh. a very young, new generation going to the shows, and I am so thankful because yeah. that's the best audience you can have. Well, good. Um, can you and the band play another song? Oh, we can, if you want, of course. And what will it be? Uh, we could play Cara de Espejo, which means mirror face. Right. 
That is Juana Molina performing Cara de Espejo, which means... Uh, mirror face. Mirror face. Which means it's when, when you know you're going to look at yourself, right. you put a special face. Yeah. It's all about that self-consciousness that yes. a mirror, yes. or being, being photographed. Yes. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes you, you find a mirror in the street that you didn't expect, and oh, yeah, yeah. That song uh, is, like much of your music, is built around uh, kind of repeating, looping yeah. figures. Um, so talk about the process of composing a song like that. Does it come full into your head or do you mess around with your machines? I mess around, but I must say that I've had an inclination for uh, drones and looping stuff since my very, very beginning. As um, I was playing for hours the same chords over and over and over and over. And for instance, when all these machines and computers didn't exist, uh, I recorded it just in, in a stereo cassette in my... Remember those things like that? Two cassette yes, players? Yes, Okay, so I recorded on one of them uh, just for as long the cassette was. So if it was a 45-minute long uh, side, I would play for 45 minutes something that was driving me in that kind of... Uh, universe or world that I can live in and I just can't stop playing that given the re- that so much of it is repetition what do you do to keep a song dramatic because it it has to, unless it's a totally experimental thing that nobody's yeah. going to want to play yeah. you have to have some change right yeah you have do you need to have um, a story right musically. maybe musically yeah. maybe it doesn't change much but it's telling you something and that's why I always make the difference between a recorded loop or a live loop. So for the live shows, I record the loops. But for the records, I just play the loops through the whole song, just because I like it. How ironic. I mean, that's to say that, that you're doing it live for recordings, but recording for live. Yes. Can you play one more song before you go? Okay, And yes. this is? Uh, sin dones. And dones, that's without what? What does dones mean? Any gifts. Oh, when gifts. you're not gifted. Really? Oh, it's in that sense. In that sense, when I you're t- not gifted. Okay, so not regalos. No, 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 uh, ah, no. When ah, you're not ah, gifted. Gotcha. I don't think every, anyone has ever said that in America. Well, Because well, we're all gifted. Uh, yes. Sure. Um, uh, let's hear that song. And, okay. And, uh, and Juana Molina, thank you. This has been such a pleasure. Oh, thank you. Cuando vi la
that's it for this episode of Studio 360. Our show is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our sound engineer is... Sandra Lopez-Monsalve. Our producers are... Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is... Morgan Flannery. And I am Kurt Anderson. Are baby boomers a generation of sociopaths? Thanks for listening. PRI Public Radio International. Years ago, I was a very famous actress. Next time on Studio 360? That gave me the experience to write this book about fame and why we seek it. Justine Bateman on being inside and outside the fame bubble. How out of control that seeking has become. Next time on Studio 360.